Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Everything Athletes. I'm your host, Kim Carducci, former Division I swimmer and existential thinker. This is the third episode in our three-part series where I look at the IOC's 2019 Mental Health Consensus Report. If you haven't caught up on the 11 mental health symptoms and disorders that we've already discussed in the previous two episodes, head back to those. We've covered those in the last two weeks, sharing the insights and knowledge that the IOC has presented about depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar, sports-related concussion. There are 11 in total. So uh, if you want to learn about the prevalence of those disorders like which sport they're more prevalent in, which country, which gender, and some of the factors involved in these specific disorders. Head back to those. Today, we're wrapping up the report with the major stressors and key environmental factors that influence elite athlete mental health. We'll be looking at some of the risk factors for injury, how to respond and recover from injury and illness, We'll look at some of the barriers to seeking care for mental health in sports. We will particularly look at their section called transition out of sport for retired athletes. And then ultimately we'll end with creating an environment that supports mental well-being and resilience. And then they have a final list of future directions. It's a list of 13 recommendations or suggestions or the quote unquote future directions where there needs to be more support for mental health and sports going forward. So let's get to it. So off the bat, we're just gonna dive into the major stressors that influence elite athlete mental health. And they first talk about harassment and abuse. This is defined as non-accidental violence. So this first fact doesn't actually surprise me. It's sad, but it doesn't surprise me. The fact that psychological abuse is considered the basis for all other forms of non-accidental violence and is the most prevalent in sports. It can manifest as negligence, bullying, hazing, verbal mechanisms, cyber mechanisms, and contact mechanisms. And then the sport populations or the groups in sports that have the highest risk of this non-accidental violence or abuse are child athletes, athletes who identify as LGBTQ, and athletes with a disability. That's all just very disappointing. And I'll name just a couple of the data points, the actual percentages of prevalence that they include here, but they do also say underreporting is a significant concern and it limits conclusions about prevalence because we don't really know how often this is happening. I mean, I even think of the Larry Nasser case with Simone Biles and Ali Raisman and all of the gymnasts. Like, you know, how long was that going on where either no one knew or no one came forward, no one confronted, you know, who knows? So prevalence is definitely a concern. But for psychological abuse, I can't believe, I mean, I can believe this, but I also can't believe this. They say that psychological abuse happens in 75% of youth athletes. That's crazy sad. And then sexual abuse, they say, ranges anywhere from just 2%, which, I mean, it should be zero, but from 2% all the way up to 49%. When it comes to both psychological and sexual abuse, the male perpetrators are more common. Female athletes are more often victims of sexual abuse. 
And they say that some of the perpetrators could be team physicians, coaches, other members of an athlete's entourage, peers, or teammates. And then the negative effects on the athlete of this non-accidental violence behavior includes things like low self-esteem, eating disorders, self-harm, distorted body image, poor academic performance, depression and anxiety, substance abuse, and suicide. And then they also say the abuse is correlated with willingness to cheat or dope. And I guess that makes sense too. If you're an athlete and you're caught in a psychological or I guess sexual abuse situation, I think there's probably just so much trepidation and fear to not, I don't know, I've never been in this situation, but to not like cross the perpetrator or upset the perpetrator. I imagine it's similar to domestic violence. And so if your coach or whoever's the perpetrator is forcing cheating or suggesting cheating or encouraging doping, you're likely going to follow what they say because they're, you know, the power control person in that relationship. And then the recommended treatment, the report says that sports medicine providers should develop the clinical competence to recognize non-accidental violence. They should be able to manage athlete disclosures. They need to be able to report cases and then not just treat the victims, but treat the families and teams that are involved. Okay, the next section, how injury, performance, and mental health intersect. So they kind of take a step back and just say, With elite sports, there are specific stressors that increase the likelihood of injury or illness, and that includes mental health disorders. It's not just a sprained ankle or a torn ACL. It's also things like depression and anxiety. And we'll go into the specific stressors that they're highlighting because they're saying sports, they probably have more prevalence in sports because there are these stressors that exist in an athlete's life that don't exist in a non-athlete's life. Two other bullet points before we get into the risk factors for injury. They also say injury can potentially unmask or precipitate other mental health disorders. And then vice versa, mental health disorders can increase the likelihood of or actually complicate recovery from injury. So, so not a healthy situation to be in. So here are some of the injury risk factors when it comes to being an injured athlete and your mental health. There are, there's a section for psychological and then there's a section for sociocultural. The psychological risk factors are anxiety and worry, hypervigilance, poor body image, low self-esteem, perfectionism, limited coping resources, life event stress, risk-taking behaviors, and low mood state. So they're saying if these particular symptoms or risk factors are appearing, you are more prone to a mental health disorder or to some sort of illness. If you're struggling with low self-esteem, as an example, you may be more prone to an eating disorder. If you're struggling with perfectionism, you may be more prone to anxiety. So these are just some of the things to be aware of. And then for the socio-cultural risk factors, they include limited social resources, a history of sexual or physical abuse, social pressures, organizational stress, and they say that's associated with an athlete's appraisal of the structure and function of their sports organization, stress related to negative self-appraisal of athletic and academic performance, coaching quality, and team culture. So when they say team culture, they're saying 
having that mindset of winning at all costs, which is actually unhealthy, versus striving for continual improvement. Okay, and then they just go into the response to and recovery from injury and illness. So they just go through some of the cognitive responses and emotional responses that an athlete or someone on the sports medicine team should just be aware of. So the cognitive responses to injury and illness, the athlete obviously will have concerns about re-injury, doubts about competency, low self-efficacy, loss of identity. That one's huge. If you are just listening to this podcast for the first time, identity, loss of identity, those are topics that I always go back to. That's what I base most of my research on is that athlete identity. And then concerns about competency of the medical staff. The emotional responses include things like sadness, depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety, isolation, lack of motivation, anger, irritation, frustration, changes in appetite or sleep, low vigor, disengagement, and burnout. And of course, I know I say of course, but it makes sense. It's unfortunate, but it makes sense. Injured athletes report more symptoms of depression and of generalized anxiety disorder compared with non-injured athletes. Of course, that just makes sense. And injury also has the ability to unmask or trigger other underlying mental health disorders, such as gambling, disordered eating, and substance abuse. And here are the recommended treatment strategies that support positive return to sport. So if you know an athlete right now that is injured, is on the bench, is about to return to sport, is going through PT, send this episode to them, send them to this exact timestamp in the episode and have them listen to what the IOC says. These are treatment strategies that support positive return to sport. There are seven. The first one, reducing re-injury anxieties using modeling techniques such as watching videos of formerly injured athletes discussing how they overcame their re-injury anxieties. Two, pairing an injured athlete with another athlete proficient in certain rehab exercises so the less experienced athlete can learn how to execute the exercises correctly. Three, fostering athlete autonomy, meaning explaining why they are performing certain exercises. Four, build confidence through functional tests and goal setting. Five, provide social support. Six, keep athletes involved in their sport, but avoid premature return. And seven, stress inoculation training when injury requires surgery. All right, moving on to the next section, barriers to seeking care for mental health symptoms and disorders. This includes things like, of course, the stigma in sports. It could be public stigma. It also could be the self-stigma. Also, the fact that certain countries don't even offer mental health services. I think America is getting better. We are definitely better than, let's say, a decade ago. But there are definitely countries out there that, I mean, they probably have limited physical health services. So definitely they would struggle having mental health services. Uh, Lack of mental health literacy, right? Things like this podcast that hopefully is sharing some of this knowledge on what to look out for. What are some of the treatment strategies? What are the experts saying? So coaches, parents, the media, the athletes, so we can have this mental health literacy to help us in these tough moments. 
Another barrier to seeking care includes busy athlete schedules, right? Especially if you're a student athlete, you almost don't have time to even brush your teeth at the end of the night. So busy athlete schedules is another one. Concerns about how the athlete will be perceived by the team and coaches is another factor that prevents athletes to seek care. And then they also mention having a negative past experience with mental health help seeking that could also contribute um, and prevent an athlete from seeking care. On the flip side of the coin, the facilitators to seeking care include having an established relationship with a mental health provider, having positive previous interactions with mental health providers, the perception of benefits to seeking help, right? So if they think if they truly think they will get better from seeking help, they're more inclined to go than if they think it's not going to help them. The sense of self-efficacy to seek treatment. And then the last one, which I think is crucial, is the positive attitudes of others, especially coaches, for seeking treatment. They also list several factors that are associated with having a negative attitude about mental health services. So the very first one is identification as male. So if you identify as male, you likely have a negative attitude about mental health services than someone who identifies as female. Other factors that have a negative attitude about mental health services are having a younger age, so just being younger. Um, They mention black versus Caucasian race, US versus European nationality. They also mention lower measures of openness, higher measures of conscientiousness, gender role conflicts, and participation in physical contact sports. You know, this is really interesting to me. Like just on that last one, participation in physical contact sports. Okay, so let's just say rugby. Why would a rugby player be more likely to have a negative attitude about mental health services than, let's say, a golfer? It's just interesting to note. But to support the positive attitude for seeking mental health and, and mental health services as a whole, they actually say that coaches can be important advocates of promoting those positive attitudes by being mindful of early identification of the mental health symptoms and referring athletes with possible mental health symptoms to mental health services. So referring them. So identifying the symptoms early and referring the athletes to a professional. And then when it comes to an athlete sitting down with a counselor or sitting down with a therapist, the report also points out that athletes have strong preferences for the counselor characteristics. Athletes want their therapist to be familiar with their sport. They want their therapist to be of the same gender. They want them to be older, but still close enough in age to understand their lives And the last characteristic was they want their counselor or therapist to have geographic proximity to the sports facility. Okay, now let's talk about the next section, transition out of sport, which hits a little too close to home for me. But they say that mental health symptoms and disorders in former elite athletes range from 5% for adverse alcohol use to around 45% for anxiety and depression. And they also mention, and this makes sense, but an undesired or an involuntary retirement from sport, like if you get injured and you can never play again, or if you don't make the team and that was your last chance to ever compete, like when you don't really have a say in when you retire, 
those athletes have an increased risk of mental health symptoms when they're transitioning into their post-sport life. Other factors that are associated with those adjustment difficulties include having a high level of athletic identity. So if that's your whole life, which many athletes fall into this, they ha- there's that identity foreclosure piece. If being an athlete is your whole identity and you're attached to that, it's a lot more challenging to let go. Um, they also mention a lack of retirement planning contributes to the difficulty in adjusting to a life post-sport. They mention lower educational attainment, adverse life events, post-sport unemployment, and chronic pain. What they do recommend for treatment and some treatment strategies, they do recommend having an exit health examination. I think that could help maybe with some closure as well. Uh, They recommend having thorough preparation for your post-sport life. So the three bullet points they actually mention here are engaging with educational programs, educational seminars, uh, visiting practical resource centers, let's say for career planning or building your resume. Um, They also mention mental and life skills training for career transition. And then clinicians can actually help athletes become aware of, develop, and use transferable skills that may provide direction, meaning, and motivation in their post-sport life. Okay, the next section is mental health emergencies. This one was a little bit shorter. They just mentioned a few things that I thought were interesting to note. Deselection, so like not making the team, that is linked to acute adverse emotional reactions, right? Like if you train for 15 years to make the Olympic team and you get to Olympic trials and you place third place, you'd have to be top one or two to make the team. Let's say you place third. Okay, you didn't make the team. That's deselection. You might have an acute adverse emotional reaction. They also say injuries are associated with anger and depression. And because of that, the increase in suicide is higher. Um, They say death by suicide is two to four times greater in male athletes who may have used anabolic androgenic steroids compared with the general population. And I thought this was really interesting, this last one. I I think it's probably interesting because it's more personal to my life. But they say that limited data suggests that borderline subtypes are the most common personality disorder found in sport. Now, I thought this was interesting because a while ago, I had looked up borderline personality disorder and I read the bullet point symptoms of someone with borderline personality. What are the characteristics? And I was like, oh, this is me. Like someone who's very compulsive. We're getting pretty personal here, but it's someone who they say has an intense fear of abandonment or instability. They don't like to be alone frequent mood swings, just the impulsive and risky behavior. They say like gambling, reckless driving, sabotaging success by like suddenly quitting your job and maybe starting a podcast. I don't know. I'm not diagnosing myself here on this podcast, but I think a lot of the characteristics of borderline personality overlap with me. All right. And then the last section before we move on to the future directions, the last section is creating an environment that supports mental well-being and resilience. So again, if you have a coach or an athlete or a teammate or someone who needs to hear how to create a healthy environment that supports mental well-being in sports, here you go. So this is what coaches can do to create that healthy environment. There are five major bullet points. The first one, create a destigmatizing environment. So what that means, 
That means that mental health help seeking is a core function of training and self-care. It's promoted within the team. Coaches encourage it. In a destigmatized environment, coaches attend to athlete stressors, including the training load, the recovery, injury, burnout, and retirement. Coaches ensure that training is age and developmentally appropriate. And coaches also communicate the importance of mental health to parents if they're, you know, high school, college, or younger age. Okay, bullet point two for what coaches can do to create an environment that supports mental well-being. They can foster positive psychological development and well-being to learn how to respond to stressors in healthy ways. Now, I like this one. I wish it was a little more in the weeds about how to actually do that, right? Like foster positive psychological development sounds great, but if a coach is hired to help you jump the hurdles faster, they're not going to know like literally how to do that in the day. So great idea. I wish there was a little more detail on how to do that. Uh, The third bullet point is to help athletes learn skills that promote resilience, psychological flexibility, self-compassion, and adaptation to situational demands while staying consistent with one's values. The fourth one, foster a process-oriented mindset that emphasizes effort and improvement rather than achievements and outcomes. Okay, so I mean, on some of these... They're big ideas. They're great in theory. I think the next step from this report that someone can do, you know, whether it's a coach, whether it's a PhD, whether it's some expert at the IOC, someone needs to take these overarching thoughts, like fostering a process oriented mindset. Okay, that's great. But like how to actually implement that? What words do you actually say to your athletes? What poster do you actually put in the locker room? These are great goals, but I think that's what's lacking in the sports community is how to actually do these things. And then the last couple bullet points outside of what coaches can do, it says what organizations can do, and it just says to provide coaching education that is evidence-based and that it actually works, and then just requiring that coaches undergo mental health training. The last section are the future directions. I'm going to link the notes and the actual report in the show notes. So if you want to look at all 13 of them, you can. I'm not going to read through each and every single one of them, but the overarching theme in these future directions of where mental health needs to continue to be supported in the future and ongoing is just to grow understanding, understand the risk factors, grow our awareness of what's going on, build more data, research more prevalence, and develop more prevention strategies for these mental health symptoms and disorders. There's just not the overarching future direction from the 13 they listed was that we just need more awareness, understanding, and help on how to actually support these symptoms and disorders. And in their conclusion, I will read the final three bullet points to offer a bit of positivity. I know this was this was a tough three-part series. It's not super fun to go through all of these symptoms and disorders and hear about the anxious thinking and the tough symptoms and the tough mindsets and go through the tougher side of what these disorders actually look like. So if you've made it this far, thank you for being such a trooper. But here are the three bullet points that they laid out in their conclusion. One, improving mental health will reduce suffering and improve quality of life in elite athletes. Woohoo! Two, all symptoms, disorders, and illnesses, including physical, 
can be managed properly by well-informed medical providers, coaches, and other stakeholders. Woohoo! Three, mental health assessments and management in elite athletes should be as commonplace and accessible as their other medical care. Yes, it should. Whew! So that's all. That was quite a three-part series. That was quite a doozy. Again, thank you if you have made it this far listening to all of this. It can definitely feel a bit heavy and it's definitely on the research side of this topic. So thanks for bearing with all of the statistics and the research that was in this report. But I do think it is helpful to look at the numbers, to look at what's actually going on. Again, this report came out in 2019. It's 2021 as I'm recording this. So it's one of the most recent and comprehensive reports out there on mental health and sports. So again, I'll include the link in the show notes if you want to read the report for yourself, or you can also read my notes. I have a 21 page easy read. It's all bullet points that you can actually just uh, read the abbreviated version of the report if you'd like. But, but kudos to you for growing your own awareness on mental health symptoms and disorders in elite athletes. Please share either this episode or one of the other two episodes with someone, a teammate, an athlete you coach, a coach that coaches you. I mean, don't take it from me, take it from the experts at the International Olympic Committee. The more we can grow our understanding and grow our awareness on what this looks like, what to look for and what to do, the better off athletes of the next generation will be. So until next time, here's to thriving. Thank you.